Hello, and welcome to The Books That Built Me, where authors share the books that have inspired their writing. I'm Helen Brocklebank, and in this episode, I'm talking to Emma Beddington, author of the memoir We'll Always Have Paris, and the cult blog Belgian Waffling. We explore her preoccupation with language and identity, and the relationship between blogging and memoir. The podcast was recorded on the 21st of June, 2016, at the club at Café Royal. Bonsoir et bienvenue euh, les livres qui m'ont construit. Enfin, I'm not even going to try. It's like children. Actually, it's quite appropriate to have. I uh, thought so. I thought we were. This this evening now, and my chill, my children do go to French school for reasons that should be completely less and less time made me rehearse the, that, what I normally say at the beginning, welcome to the books that built me, I'm Helen Brocklebank, and for those of you who don't know me, I'm the host of the books that built me. They made me rehearse it in French, and I'm really glad to have given it up, that's a bad job, because I just, you know, so uh, having tried and failed to be French, you see what I did there? That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what uh, you wanted to be when you grew up, I wanted to be a librarian, which... Um, Seriously, okay. do you really want to be a librarian? Let's not, let's not talk about that okay. one. Um, well, in fact, you know, let's let's just not go there. But um, Emma Bennington, our guest this evening, the author of the brilliant, moving, unbelievably funny uh, memoir, will always have Paris. Wanted to be French when she got and um, her memoir says <laughs> to the fact that you really should be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> if you dream of being and being somebody else, actually you'll end up going on a journey to find who you really are, which is what this brilliant book uh, does. So please join me in welcoming Emma Bennington to the books that built me. All the way from the centre of the European Union, Brussels. All the way. <laughs> to be honest, tonight. All the way from. Remain. I can't say sunny Brussels because it really was. <laughs> so when I'm really, so thank you for coming. I, I when I'll confess an interest, which we'll talk about in a minute, because Emma and I first met through Emma's fantastic blog, Belgian Waffling, which you haven't read. If you haven't read it, you must read it. Um, I think about eight years ago. It's a long time. And the minute you said you were writing this book, I said, right, I'm booking you for the books that built me. And so it came to pass. (laughs) (laughs) So before we talk about uh, the books that have built you, can you tell us a little bit, please, about We'll Always Have Paris? The irony of that title. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from North Yorkshire, and um, there's nowhere that's quite as distant, I think, from Parisian chic than York. York has it has historical reenactors and old men's real ale pubs and it has crappy indie bands. Um, and Paris, as I dreamt of it as a teenager, had everything. It had Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir sitting outside the Domago and it had at Serge Gainsbourg, and it had sex and beautiful food and amazing cakes, and it had everything that I dreamt of, and York just had the fat rascal, which is like a big, slightly sort of misshapen scum. So as a teenager in York, I was bored witless most of the time, and in our school library we had French L magazine, and I became completely addicted to reading French L magazine, which was a weekly, cover to cover, um, and I would go there and I would just sort of, most of it I didn't understand, but I could tell that it was deeply desirable. And, um, and I would go down to Brown's department store in York and check for all the makeup they had in the magazine. And they'd be like, no, we don't have that. <laughs> so I had sort of built up this image of France and Paris particularly as being this just amazing place of sort of culture and sex and beauty and everything that you didn't get in North Yorkshire. Um, and I sort of dedicated the next 10, 15 years of my life to becoming French or trying to, which was obviously a, just a terrible, terrible failure because you can't actually become French, it turns out. Uh, but I studied French literature and I went to work in France and found a sort of 
long-suffering French boyfriend. And eventually, after sort of a while, two children, 10 years or something, eight years maybe, we finally got the opportunity to move to Paris. And so this was going to be the culmination of all my dreams. We were going to live in Paris and it was going to be amazing. And the combination of circumstance, place and me being who I am, it didn't quite work out like that. And kind of the bulk of the story is about what happens when you finally get to live your dreams and it doesn't quite work out the way you think it's going to. And where do you go from there? Well, you don't become a librarian, let's put it that way. No. no. <laughs> but we do, but we, but we can still pretend to be French because we are wearing... We have, we, we have gone for our... Yeah. Yeah. As, as, as worn on the streets of Paris. <laughs> no. <laughs> also, generally better to check that the bra you're wearing actually works under your T-shirt before you wear it for the first time. But, you know, live and learn. <laughs> Another French chic fail here. <laughs> that would never happen to a French person. Never. Never. They wouldn't be wearing a flesh-coloured bra in the first time. <laughs> so we can admit to great, to great French failure and... Um, and on to your first book. Let's proceed. So um, tell us what you've chosen for your first book. So my first book is P.G. Woodhouse, The Code of the Worcesters. And one of the reasons I chose this book was in the, back in 2008, when Helen, the internet was new and fresh and Twitter had just been invented and everything was wonderful, Helen and I started emailing each other. And one of our very first email exchanges was Helen quoting me a large swathe of the Code of the Worcesters. And there's something about P.G. Woodhouse and other books, but this is like a sort of secret language of people who really, really love it. It's a special club. There's a special P.G. Yeah. Woodhouse. In fact, there's not a special P.G. Woodhouse handshake, but there is a P.G. Woodhouse klaxon. <laughs> <laughs> because Bolling, Bollinger, who, who very kindly has us less thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bollinger. As Madame Bollinger yeah. says, I drink it when I'm happy, I drink it when I'm sad, I drink it. Anyway, they have they have a prize, the old, world's only prize for comic fiction. Yep. It's the Bollinger Woodhouse Prize in honour of P.G. Woodhouse. And if you win that, as um, Hannah Rothschild and Paul uh, Murray did this year, yeah. you get to name your very yeah. own pig. Which is amazing. Which is quite amazing. <laughs> Although I wonder if you just go and sit. So I... In honour of you choosing this, because he is the funniest <laughs> author, I bought you a pig. No, is this my pig? And you can name it. And okay, you, well, I'll have a think during the course of the evening you can, can work it out. <laughs> so, and you've got a glass of Bollinger, and you will also get an Everyman so copy of uh, yeah. The Code of the Worcesters. So, uh, I won't so. let my dog chew, <laughs> which is what happens to most things in our house. That are soft. Okay, don't let it. Don't let him have that. It's the it's the, it's the Bollinger pig. It's far too good for him. Like the one in in Gloucestershire, it gets Bollinger massaged into it. It's like a wagyu cow, but a wagyu cow, but with Bollinger. Oh, with Bollinger and pigs. <laughs> but we, but anyway, so we shouldn't we shouldn't digress onto that. We should talk about let's talk about Woodhouse. What's was it? The Code of the Worcesters is is always. Always funny. It, it could have been the Code of the Worcesters. Frankly, it could have been ten of them, but that was the one that you and I had bonded over. Because the, one of the things about them is they are super, super formulaic. And, the, you know, there are ten things that are going to happen in a Jeeves and Worcester novel. You know, there will be some kind of terrible incident where somebody's taking a fly out of somebody's eye and is thought to be embracing them. And, um, you know, somebody's... The policeman's helmet will probably be involved and, you know... There'll be a terrible incident of drunkenness. Anatole, Anatole, the French chef, will be mentioned, and you know the threat of his withdrawal. And aunts, aunts will be involved. I say aunts because I'm northern. But um, Jeeves will disapprove of Worcester. Yes, Jeeves will have some kind of sort of agenda, which will be sort of rebuffed repeatedly, and then at the end. Bertie will finally sort of submit to whatever it is he wants. It's a cruise in this one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so who's, who's read The Code of the Worcesters? Or who's read Jeeves and Worcester? Who loves Woodhouse? Because one of the things that when we were... It is complete comfort. How old were you when you had, had your first Woodhouse moment? 11 or 12, I think. There wasn't much to do in Northampton. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, Northampton. But um, I spent a lot of, like, really long rainy holidays in the Yorkshire countryside and usually there would be a stack of these because one of the other things is that both my parents and both my step parents they really really love it so it was a thing that was sort of a common language as well so there would always be a stack of these sort of orange peachy woodhouses and you know if there was nothing else I could do and 
the reception on Radio 1 wasn't working, which is often the case. I would sort of sulkily pick up a book, and, um, and it was often these. So. Because one, I wanted to to talk to you about your, your one of the things that you said about writing your book is is that you is that thing I always want things to be funny even when they're really sad and there is a lot that's very sad in the book I mean it's you know it's painful when you wish for something and it doesn't work out how absolutely much yes so, yeah. um, and I tell me so tell me about writing funny how has that always come easy oh. I don't know. I mean, I don't know any other way to do it. So whether it comes easily. Well, I, writing generally, that's really hard. <laughs> People who do that, they're good at that. But um, Woodhouse, I don't think, necessarily found it very easy either. Actually, it comes across as that sort of swan effect that it inc- appears utterly effortless and beautiful and sort of, you know, tossed off lightly. And actually, you work really hard on them. And, and, and I sort of really respect that. As it's a craft to make something sort of consistently funny and to appear light and... That's that's a real gift, I think. It is, I mean, it's the, they are quite formulaic, I suppose, in the plot, completely. but the writing is it's amazing. Is completely amazing. The yeah. beginning of the uh, the Code of the Roosters is a depiction of a hangover that if you've never had anything to drink, <laughs> you read that. Still, and you, you go, still yeah, go, yeah, I get what that is. I get it. So, <laughs> yeah. And that it takes, uh, as you say, it's the sw- it's the swan effect about swimming swimming the water. So the, your your second book is Simone de Beauvoir's Memoirs of a Beautiful Daughter. It Who is. has read any of the Beauvoir? Oh, look. But actually, has anyone read this one? Who's read this Memoir's one? Yeah. The same copy. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. It's, yeah. A lovely, it's a beautiful cover, isn't it, yeah. with that Matisse on the front? Um, for people who haven't read it, or people like a refresher, can you tell us a little bit about, about what Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter is? Yeah. So um, it's the first volume of Simone de Beauvoir's Memoirs, of which there are, I think, four, maybe even five volumes. And actually, I read volume two more recently and that's an absolute cracker it's, it was not something that was part of my sort of writing whatever but it's an amazing book and I would definitely recommend that one because that's sort of the war and Sartre and all the sort of Paris in the war and shortages and oh, it's amazing but this is a story of her sort of from her infancy to about her sort of early 20s when she well, just when she first meets Sartre in fact and she comes from this sort of really it's a really sort of, she was born in 1909, I think, and it's sort of this classic picture of the sort of uptight, bourgeois, Catholic, Parisian family. You know, there were these beautiful white dresses and everything is very, very sort of perfect. And so in the course of her infancy through to 20, kind of the world sort of falls apart in some ways, because you know, it's the First World War, basically, and um, her father loses all his money, um, and she just lives a life that would have been completely inconceivable to her parents' generation. Um, So it's just sort of really interesting, I think, about that sort of passage from really conventional Catholic childhood. And, you know, Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, and she was, she was very pious, she was very, very into her studies, I mean, always into her studies. But the sort of really nice side of it, because you think you do tend to think of de Beauvoir as being quite a sort of austere writer, I do, is that she sort of puts her amazing analytical skills to describing childhood and she describes childhood in this sort of beautiful sensual way and she's you know she's got these incredible analytical skills but she'll be talking about something like the jellied fruits that her parents serve or the things that she really hated eating and so I really love it for that because she's such a sort of um, forensically precise writer but she addresses these sort of really sensual subjects I think. It's it's incredibly evocative isn't it? There's a she gets given a doll, which has got a whole trunk full of clothes. I mean, those little, te- little details that that sumptuous childhood, that bourgeois childhood, she yeah. has is beautiful. Yeah. So how did you how did you come across it? Why is it one of your building yeah, blocks? I think it's probably the first French book I read after like Barbar. Barbar's great. Barbar's not allowed. Was not allowed in my 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 stepfather. My stepfather has quite strong opinions on Is that because many he's a things. colonialist? Yes, he, he refused. Or... I was allowed to read Barber, but he's so my stepfather. So when my half-sister's sister was growing up, she wasn't allowed to read Barber because Barber was a sort of, you know, colonialist, colonialist something. Yeah. Anyway, my mum gave me this, I think, and I would have been in my mid-teens. And it was quite hard to get into. It's not the, it's not the easiest book you'll ever read. Because she is quite a sort of, style-wise, she can seem quite austere. And in English or in French? In English, in English, I wasn't that, <laughs> wasn't that precocious. Um, but it's quite interesting because I mean, she talks about things like you know, her sort of first sexual 
feelings and you know all these kind of things which as a teenager I mean I don't know it was quite interesting to read about somebody back in the olden days talking yeah, about you know who could be interesting playing on the yeah yeah it was very interesting and she gets flashed out in Catholic bookshops <laughs> <laughs> so she've got flashed out in a Protestant bookshop. I don't maybe or I don't maybe I'm just even projecting. I'm not sure it was necessarily Catholic, but she was sort of a really big bookshop. I don't know. <laughs> um, but just sort of, you know, she's sort of describing it and again this sort of forensic detail about this man flashing her. <laughs> I really like I like the way she sort of, you know, all these subjects are of equal interest and value and I'm gonna describe them. Now how how far did that set the scene for your your view of what being French meant? I mean it's an interesting combination, French L and Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter at the same Kind of time. Well, I think that that sort of really, really it, that intellectualism is is very, very sort of classic. An idea of what people have of Frenchness, and and it's very much there. You know, her academics are super important, and it's all sort of, that's all in it. And the other thing that's really big in this book is Paris. Paris is like a character in the book. It's a sort of her entire childhood plays out in places that for us are sort of. You know, amazing tourist destinations. She has tantrums on the Boulevard Raspail, and you know, Le Luxembourg. She talks about Le Luxembourg all the time. It doesn't even get called like Le Jardin Le Luxembourg. It's so sort of familiar. It's part of her everyday life. It's just it's like Le Luxembourg, and everything happens there. Um, so it's sort of the scene where her childhood plays out. So I think it got me very excited already about Paris. I mean, it's interesting. Paris particularly is mythologized, isn't it? We talk about France generally, but it's. A it's always through a filter of what Paris means to us, I think. It's well, that's the sexy side, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> a bit sexier than... Yeah. Flaneuring down yeah. the Rue de Ribbon. Yeah, especially for an adolescent. I think especially in your adolescence, it's just like, oh, yes. Yeah. This is where I need to be. <laughs> it's got all the ooh la la. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's a lovely, it's a lovely story about, about growing up, I think. And um, she gets on really badly with her father. Like, they get on really, really well when, when she's little. And he's very into her studies and he sort of pushes her to study. And then when she becomes this sort of blue stocking that he's created, he actually really doesn't like it. And there's a sort of a whole theme about because he's lost all his money, they're going to have to work, and it's actually quite shameful, and he's very uncomfortable about it, but it's what she wants, and, you know, she's, she's a real intellectual, and, and she wants to be out there working and studying, but he's really conflicted about it. So just, you know, sort of the kind of family relationships that you can recognise yeah. and that are described in that sort of really beady detail that she has. I mean... I'm the, I mean yeah, exactly. Mm. We should move on from the Paris-centred intellectual gorgeous... I, have to I to went Paris. to Paris... For the first time, I don't know how old I was, but I made a point of going to sit in Simone de Beauvoir's chair in the. Did you? Yeah, how old were you, Helen? <laughs> well, like ten. Oh, were you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining you as this. Sort of how old were you when you first went to Paris? Well, I don't know what, when I first went to Paris, but I know, and it was quite an oddity, because so my parents haven't been together since I was tiny, but the two of them took me together when I was about 12, and it was like a sort of, well, we both want to take you for your first trip to Paris, and it was really lovely. <laughs> yeah. Rite of passage. Yeah, and it was really, I mean, they got they on well, they've always got on well, so it wasn't, you know, a sort of massive sacrifice on either of their parts, or like a conflict, you know, no, I don't want, I want to do it, I want to do it. But... It was really, really nice that they both got, thought, thought this was a real rite of passage and your first trip to Paris should be a big thing. And we stayed on the Ile Saint-Louis and there was like a naked man in the, well, the opposite building and I sort of was a bit sort of repelled and attracted by it at the same time. And, and, you know, they forced me to go out and buy croissant and I was just humiliated by the did whole you, business. Yes, did, did, when, and when you spoke French, did they understand you in the boulangerie? I probably didn't. I probably pointed. I mean, no, I was 13 or something. <laughs> Just like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Bryson does that thing about um, it's when he asks for something in a French boulangerie and they look at him like he's asked for a dead badger. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there, I think. We've all had a dead badger face. Huh? <laughs> I asked for huh? forget the Chambon and then never spoke French for after that for five years. I've got us off the track, haven't I? Where are we? We're, we're going we're to talk about your third book. Okay. Which is... I converted you, I think. It's a, rail, it's a railway ride from Paris. So Paris is not. Well, it's between. No, France. it is. Well, it's got Paris. It's between. Paris, it's the between road. The, it's the between route the between two. Paris and Normandy. It's that very specific track. So yeah. It's, so it's La Bétumène. Who's read any? Who's read any Zola? Oh, what? 
people. This is good. We've got a very, very switched on oh, like, group. Lovely intellectual side. Intellectual. <laughs> um, for those of you who haven't read it, forget Paula Hawkins. If you want railway intrigue, <laughs> <laughs> murder, murder, uh, sex. adultery, yeah. sex, child abuse, yeah, uh, more murders. That's the one. <laughs> it's like, I, I was thinking this is going to be a, it's good. Yeah. a bit like reading Proust, but it was. Oh. So, railway based griplet. <laughs> <laughs> railway based griplet. It is an absolute page turner. I mean, you know, it's a 19th century novel, a late 19th century novel. It looks pretty, hmm, off putting, tiny print, the whole thing. But it is a genuine page turner. It's a proper intrigue. And it, as you say, it's got everything it's got murder and sex and. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Um, I studied history and I studied French history because as far as I could select, I would always choose something French because, you know. So um, the, I basically hated most of my university career, but the French stuff I loved and the thing I loved most was this sort of 19th century stuff. And the amazing thing about Zola is he had the work ethic of, I don't know what, he's with us to Carnivite. He'd written a novel about every theme you ever had to write about, basically. <laughs> Everything, because he wrote about, he was a real sort of interested in the issues of the day, so he'd write about impressionism, about anti-clericalism, he wrote about alcohol, and the, the problem, the perils of alcohol, he wrote about the Franco-Prussian War, so everything that was important in that period, Zola basically wrote a book about it, it was like he had a tick list of, oh, I need to do this thing, and in fact he didn't basically have a tick list, because he, he had a real sort of idea about what he wanted to write about when, and so this one is about the arrival of the steam age and railways and how that's affected society on one level. Um, and then on the other level, because he's really interested in um, the sort of evolution, I guess, and sort of natural, the way that sort of natural, selection isn't the right word, but the way that people sort of evolve over time and whether you're sort of a victim of your hereditary traits. So that was kind of the other thing that you always explored. So this is about some guy who's basically really murdery, really, really murdery. And it's about whether he can control his murdery, murdery impulses. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Can't control his murdery impulses. But it's sort of an amazing relationship between man and steam engine. Like, in Zola, it would be fair to say he's not the greatest person with character in the world. His characters tend to be more archetypes than actual people but the train the train has real personality <laughs> <laughs> she's a, and she's she's definitely a she's yeah so it's all about this relationship between man and machine and sort of clearly a big theme of the age and a real sort of concern of the age uh, and yeah and this super murdery guy Jacques Lantier who <laughs> who can't control his hereditary murdery impulses <laughs> although you will try like him you do you kind do of like, like him. him you do yeah. like him yeah so, I mean, it's because I, I hadn't realised how much. Uh, I mean, Zola, Zola really writes about the working classes, which is not, which is not in unusual. all of them, not in the whole cycle. But yes, yeah, yes, yes, he does. Because I mean, I mean, the one I first read was Germinal, which is one that's set in the mine. It's really gloomy, <laughs> really gloomy. I could have chosen that; it would probably made more sense. But actually, this is a much better read. But um, yeah, yeah, he does, and he was a sort of real sort of social activist. Very, very interested in a lot of the working man. And he was a massive researcher. Zola would, he would spend, I've got a sort of book of his research notes and it's this fact and like every novel and he wrote, the Rouge en Macau cycle is like 20 books and he wrote others. Every book has sort of this much notes and he was just, he was a real sort of tireless researcher and really interested in sort of life in his age, I think. And how, I mean, how, how do you reckon? My experience of you is a, one of the things that impressed me in your work as, as when you were a blogger. I mean, you could, make, you could, I'd be there sweating over some mind thing about some fashion, something I've been to. And in the time that I had not written anything, you'd have got about three amazing posts in which you could make house dust sound like the most exciting, beautiful, funny thing on the planet. I'd have to because really house dust is basically all I say. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Um, I think I didn't write for years and years and years. I'm not somebody who's always written. And I think when I started, I was like, oh, I've got many things to say. So I think possibly in the early years of blogging, there was a sort of backlog effect. <laughs> I'm not sure I can make house dust impress me anymore. <laughs> Don't try because you've got better no, not necessary. And how? So how? Um, so what was your process when you were writing a book? I mean, I was listening, really listening to Louis de Bernier, who's talking about it always being like a big mountain climb, and you have to just put one, not look up, and put one foot in front of the other. 
what's the big change in Initial spurt of enthusiasm, then about two series of Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) Some sort of really, really gloomy walks. Going like, why did I why did I start why did I think this was a good idea? Dragging the dog around the streets of Brussels. Why did I do this? Uh, and then occasional sort of minor smaller bursts of enthusiasm thereafter. <laughs> I'd say. Yeah. There and those sort of and afternoons where you're like, yeah, this is working all right, this works, and then whole weeks where it's just Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy, one episode after another. <laughs> I've done 200 words. (laughs) I can watch another another one. I would see myself through it. So the stuff like Discipline of Zola was not uh, your lodestone? No. No, and also I managed to choose a book which required basically no research other than trying to remember what happened. (laughs) Which helped, I think. That's a cunning writing plan. The other thing I would say about, about Zola is that it... This book is that it comes it's between the two poles in France that have been really, really important to me, one of which is Normandy, which is where the train starts out, and the part of Paris where we lived. I mean, really precisely the part of Paris where we lived. Like, there were streets. I realised when I was living there, you know, that it was all in there. You know, I was walking over the railway bridge. My son was obsessed with trains for about <laughs> the whole time we lived there. And we would just sit and watch the trains. And those are the trains he's describing. Yeah. It's that precise line. So it, it sort of has a real... I'm really attached to it for that reason too. Because you're, I mean, your your first, not your first trip to any uh, French territory, because that was Morocco, wasn't it? But it, your first prolonged sojourn was in Normandy. Normandy, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is quite a long way from the um, glamour of Paris. It is. I mean, it's got a good, good, good writing rail, good railings, a good excellent <laughs> railings. But also, you know, Flaubert, Maupassant, the all, you know, hung out in Normandy. Had a cup of tea with Zola, not tea, had a cup of coffee with Zola. Had a cup of absinthe with Zola, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Disgusting. Murder based railway. <laughs> so, I love it for that reason as well. So, I just yeah. want so um, this obsession with all things all things French, of the kind of your own uh, education sentimentale, is, is it. Um, did you only read, you didn't only read French literature in no, your house? No. <laughs> What were you, As growing up? I mean, what was I mean? I was quite like a lot of murder. I would always read murder of any variety, and still do. So it's got those, isn't it, French on? Oh, it's true. Yeah. See so my life. Was there? Was there? I mean, looking back, it's. I think it's hard to do at the time. But was there a book that you thought I really would like to do that? <laughs> well, more re- slightly more recently, our next one definitely. I mean, that's 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 the lodestone. That's that's. Everything this I'd is, ever want to do. See how cute that one up there. That's nice. Classy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, we're, going to, we're going to talk about Me Talk Pretty One Day, David Sedaris. Who has read any David Sedaris? Everyone. Yeah. I'll stay short, yeah. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I've put out some people reading this before, before we started. <laughs> Everybody bought their ticket, but I didn't, honestly. Um, I hadn't actually, I'm going to confess, I hadn't read any. This is my favourite. I mean, this is the one that really sort of, I mean, when I read this, it was just sort of, I was, my jaw dropped how lovely it was. And I don't even know how I discovered it. It was probably reviewed or something. But my American, God, it's American brilliant. Humorist, isn't, an American humorist, isn't it? An American humorist, yes. Yeah, an essayist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, there's something about the way he's got a real sort of managing to be that dark and that funny. Is everything I that's, aspire that's to. That's your sweet spot, isn't it? Oh, for me, reading is absolutely my sweet spot. I just love it. I love it. And taking your family and mocking them cruelly, <laughs> which I don't do too much, but, but you know, would like to. <laughs> I'd love to have the guts to do it. But just that sort of, oh, he's just wonderful. I think we, we're going to have to read some bits of it because, you know. Well, um, can I... Yes, do. Can Please I do. Say, but, um, but, um, I'm, uh, well, the thing about this book, the reason that part of the reason that I love it so much, is certainly the second half of this book, is that he moves to 
Normandy with his boyfriend. Basically, he only wants his boyfriend tells him he's got a house in Normandy, and David Sedaris decides that this is what he's gonna have this man, whatever happens, <laughs> because he's got a lovely house in Normandy. He sort of doesn't hear anything about it being a wreck or anything. He's just like, this is what I want. Yeah, you will, very, um, you will be mine. You will be mine. He's he's uh, he's got very severe criteria for who he'll go out with. He's incredibly strict. Yes, he has a very very strict until, set of criteria. Until this man goes. I've got a house, house in Normandy, Normandy, and then it's blah, 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 Normandy, blah, 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 blah. And there's this thing about this sort of, he's like, I'm, I'm like a soap opera villain, I like, he will be mine. <laughs> he will be mine, and this is how he sort of, you know, his destiny. Because that, in the in that, that first story, when she said to see you again yesterday, um, I wondered if you, from Hugh moved to New York at the bottom, might be the... Oh, was that what I was just, in fact, telling you what I was just saying? Yeah, it's fine. Hugh had moved to New York after spending six years in France. I asked a few questions, rightly sensing that he probably wouldn't offer anything unless provoked. There was, he said, a house in Normandy. This was most likely followed by a qualifier, something pivotal like, but it's a dump. He probably described it in detail, but by that point I was only half listening. Instead, I'd begun to imagine my life in a foreign country, some faraway land where if things went wrong, I could always blame somebody else, <laughs> saying that I never wanted to live there in the first place. <laughs> Life might be difficult for a year or two, but I would tough it out because living in a foreign country is one of those things that everyone should try at least once. My understanding was that it completed a person sanding down the rough provincial edges and transforming you into a citizen of the world. I didn't see this as a romantic idea. It had nothing to do with France itself, with wearing hats or writing tortured letters from a sidewalk cafe. I didn't care where Hemingway drank or Alice B. Toffless had her moustache trimmed. <laughs> what I found appealing in Life Abroad was the inevitable sense of helplessness it would inspire. <laughs> Equally exciting would be the work involved in overcoming that helplessness. There would be a goal involved, and I liked having goals. <laughs> so he goes to Normandy, and it, you know, snares Hugh and goes to Normandy, and then he attempts to learn French, and quite a lot of the second part of the book is concerned with that process of trying to learn French. And I've never seen anyone describe the process of trying to learn a foreign language with such precision and uh, just just so funny. And he has this horrible French teacher who's horrible to their whole class. And before that, there's this whole patch where he just learns random words because that's all he can do. And he learns, he says, on the following trip, I sanded the floors and began the practice of learning 10 new words a day. Exorcism, facial swelling, <laughs> death penalty. I found my words in the dictionary, typed them onto index cards, and committed them to memory while on my daily walks to the neighbouring village. Slaughterhouse. Sea monster. Witch doctor. And then he goes on to... Um, yeah, the next summer we went to France for six weeks, and I added another 420 words, most of which I found in the popular gossip magazine, Voici. Man-eater, I'd say. Gold digger, roused about, louse. Who are you talking about, the neighbours would ask. What social climber? Where? <laughs> it's just really, really funny. And he likes buying disgusting things, sort of, you know, two-headed calf skeletons in Paris. So a lot of what his motivation for learning French is to be able to buy more sort of hideous medical curiosities, yes, which I think is very good. I'm in the process of learning Dutch at the moment, so the whole bit about um, language classes just yet again strikes chords. <laughs> His, tra his kind of reverse translation of what he's... Uh, he writes in English what he's been trying to say in French. Yeah, and it's, yeah. And this sort of classic passage is a passage where they try and describe Easter to a Moroccan classmate. And they say, you know, <laughs> something like the little boy of God. <laughs> and he dies on two pieces of lumber or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Which is a party for the little boy of God. <laughs> My son had his Dutch oral exam this week, and one of the things he had to do was describe a festivity in his own land. <laughs> I made him listen to this. <laughs> None, neither of us had the Dutch vocabulary to conjure up anything, but we were like, you know, morning, presents, we were trying to do Christmas. <laughs> so it's very, it was, it's very accurate. And it's the, um, the bell, those different customs as well that you come, you come face to face with. I remember you telling me about the bells... Chocolate arrives on bells. In yes, so he talks about this as well. Yes, the, the bells carry the chocolate, which is ludicrous. This the, the, the rabbit, but the teacher yeah. says, a rabbit, and she does the ears. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knows the word for rabbit. Yeah, and he says something like, but how does the bell know where you live? And she says, well, how does the rabbit? <laughs> and he says, 
but at least the rabbit has eyes, that's a start. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, squeeze a bit. I just think it's the best description of a language class I've ever. <laughs> so when did you when did you when did you find it? When did you? Oh well, when was it published? Whenever whenever that was published. I'm just trying to just trying to forensically trace back the moment that you decided that being a writer was for you. Two thousand. So yeah, probably then. That's about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd had sort of a long acquaintance with France by that time, and that sort of process of not being quite at home in a language was just sort of intrinsically incredibly funny to me. <laughs> this, if you're interested in language and you like language, something about learning another one just opens all these possibilities of <laughs> terrible, humorous disaster open up to you. <laughs> well, it's quite. I mean, that's one of the things that you explore in your book, which I found. Um, I mean, funny, but also incredibly moving. That although you're fluent by the time you get to Paris and your French is impeccable, it actually just gives you a false sense of a false expectation of belonging. That's true. Yeah, I think that is true. Um, and, and, and in fact, with discovering that you're not actually quite the same person in another language, well, actually, I think anyone who speaks more than language, one language tends to have that feeling where you're just not quite the same person and you, you express yourself differently and you don't have the, the fluidity and you don't have the sort of the dexterity that you have in your own language. I mean, I just, I, I'm not funny in French. I'm not funny at all. You know, I might be funny in English, but I'm certainly not funny in French, you know. And you try and make these jokes and it's really laborious and you try and be funny and everyone just sort of stares at you a bit blankly because on some level, the way you're doing it or the what you're saying it just doesn't work. I mean, how, how different, I mean, I know this is, might not be a question you can answer, but how different is French humour from British humour? I mean, we are, are we a country divided by a sense of humour? Could you translate, we'll always have Paris into French? No. No, I don't think so. This is really awful, I don't find French. French humorous films, French humorous products, generally, I don't find any. I don't know. There's I mean, something. There's there's an absence of that kind of darkness. I think they like slapstick and you know. The, yeah, I mean Jack Tat and Miss Hulot's Holiday, which yeah, is yeah. really funny. Yeah. But it's funny in a, a kind of a mind kind of way. I mean, obviously, there you know there clearly there are exceptions, but the kind of real dark humour. I don't think you get as much of. You know, there are bits. Yeah. Bel Belgium's more like that actually. Belgium, Belgians tend to have a bit more of that sort of real darkness. Because that's, I mean, that's the, that's the streak of humour that's very British about your, your writing. It is a mordant kind of dark, this thing that things must be funny even, though, even when they are absolutely appallingly sad. For me, that's the, fun, the funniest stuff is the stuff that's really dark. <laughs> that's how I like my humour. I'm not like, oh, 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 this man is wearing a funny hat. How amusing. You know, I, that does not make me laugh. Although, oh, we have fallen over a dog. <laughs> how amusing. The there has to be something really, really bad going on on the underside for me to really love, I think. It's transgressive, learning, isn't it? It's transgressive. Learning yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So people throwing chalk at, you know, it's this horrible teacher who just hates him and hates all their pupils. <laughs> I love that. So, there's, so there's, there is this, this tipping point in, in 2000 or something is planted by... David Sedaris and think, I think I think that is true. I think I think it was a sort of way of writing that I could I mean I couldn't imagine me ever being anything like as good as him, but I could kind of I could see that that was the kind of thing I would love to be able to do, I guess. And you but you were a lawyer, so you're I mean I'm presuming you write I was. <laughs> it's true, I was in two thousand. <laughs> I was a lawyer for a long time. Would you be writing plenty of stuff that's not funny at all? No, there was literally no humour in it. There, there was often a kind of sort of really awful dark humour in some of the songs. I remember being sort of trapped in a meeting room with, with seven, seven German crop protection <laughs> associates for about 24 hours and, and me and my colleague quite often had to go out into the corridor and just be like, ah. <laughs> never going to get out of here. But um, yeah, a dark, a dark kind of law humour. But no, in terms of what I was actually writing... There was no humorous element whatsoever, and if there was, I was doing it wrong. So, <laughs> not a lot of jokes in. So how did so how did you get from there to 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 blogging? I mean, I I only this, I didn't know blogging existed until one of my friends had a blog. Oh yeah, what, what was yours? And that, what was yours? Well, my my friend always kept saying, "Oh, I've been on Google Analytics or something," and I had I had loads more viewers than last week. 
Who's your friend? Do they still blog? Um, no, they don't. don't. Okay. It's um, and, uh, and I thought, and I thought, I want that though. Did you? <laughs> I want to have viewers. <laughs> I mean, well, I hadn't ever kept a diary. It was kind of the diary. No, I didn't you a diary. Not at all. Not at all. What I did was I wrote emails. Uh, I had one excellent friend in my law firm and one excellent friend outside my law firm, and I would send them these sort of long screeds of basically complaints, <laughs> which is exactly what my blog is now, but just complaints. Humorously phrased, but basically, <laughs> yeah, complaints about my life. <laughs> Mine was all about FOMO, which I believe means fear of missing out. I, that's why I, I knew I was missing out. <laughs> I was definitely missing out. <laughs> I've been sort of in a data room of 7,000 documents for about three years. I was definitely missing out. Yeah. But I like the fact that you were complete in, on the, in the blog space. So we're going back, what, to your, it's nearly 10 years now. No, not that much. Eight, eight I guess eight years. Um, you were anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was necessary <laughs> from a professional could, perspective. If they well, I could hear you scream, they didn't know who was screaming. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. What's the process for you of blogging anonymously? What was what it's you very freeing, very very freeing. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think in the job I did, I couldn't have written a blog of the kind I did. I just wrote. I mean, I I, I found it quite amusing. This so this was when you'd moved to Brussels, I should say. Um, so living in Brussels, I was working in this really weird multilingual environment, and there's something about sort of multilingual environments that's quite funny, I think, <laughs> because everyone speaks this sort of odd bastard English that they've made up. Um, <laughs> the benchmarking, oh, the benchmarking, that kind of thing, a lot of that kind of thing, and just the sort of interesting culture clashes you get between different nationalities. I was quite fascinated by, and also I think that one of the main reasons I started blogging was because we lived in Brussels and Belgium was just the weirdest place and I you know it has that reputation of being kind of dull but there's a whole sort of seamy underbelly to Belgian life which is anything but dull and I think I was sort of in the process of discovering that and there's just the utter weirdness just the ambient strangeness of Belgium just made me think I have to write this down it's kind of French but not French yeah like I mean there's a man around the corner and, and he's decorated his bench with, he pulls his bench out every day and he's decorated it with fencing foils and he's got a wing mirror attached to it. And, <laughs> and, and I sort of caught him one day and he was sort of spraying, um, like a sort of, I assume a waterproofing spray onto the inside of his umbrella. And he's just, I mean, <laughs> this kind of thing. There's a woman who wears like a, a Napoleonic like three-cornered hat in our street. There was a very elderly lady who tried to karate kick me once. <laughs> and I used to get into these really weird conversations on public transport. There was a man who tried to discuss milking rabbits with me for <laughs> about half an hour. And I was just thinking, well, this is just so peculiar. It needs to be written down. And so that a lot of it was that. I think just sort of I was in this environment that seemed incredibly fertile because it was so odd. Well, that's, that's one of the things that Patrick McGuinness brings out so brilliantly. Uh, in his mem- in his memoir, which is mostly about Belgium, has anybody has anybody known Patrick McGuinness? So he's half Belgian, and which is really interesting for me because obviously I'm raising these children who are half something, and everyone in oh, Belgium, yeah, oh, you that's said European. Come on, we're yeah. all part of this. We're said something. Yeah, I, l- I looked this up today. He says actually in the book he says all Belgians are only half Belgian. Which is kind of true, because when, I mean, everyone's half something in Belgium. It's this real sort of hybrid country. I mean, partly, for God's sake, it's half Flemish, half Walloon. It's a really odd place in terms of identity and language, which are things that really, really interest me. So this is his book. Um, So his father was uh, Irish, but lived in Newcastle. So he's basically half English, I guess, now lives in Wales, and half Belgian. And the part of Belgium he's from, again, it's sort of, feeds into this real weirdness of Belgium because it's the deep, deep heart of the Ardennes um, in the south and Bouillon, which is this sort of medieval town. And we've been there. It it is an odd place. It's got this incredible medieval castle. It was a sort of crusader's castle. But it's it's a lost in time. It's a real sort of place that's sort of folded away in uh, oddness and and decay and, you know, all of Wallonia, basically the whole of south of Belgium. It has nothing. Nothing keeping it going now. There's, it, there's no industry. There's, it's a real sort of weird, anachronistic place. And he's talking about this. He's talking about his 
So his mother's family, basically, all his sort of great aunts and uncles and his grandparents and the sort of weird life. I mean, it's not weird to them, but the sort of strangeness of that sort of decaying, strange town in the south of Belgium. And so it really spoke to me for that, I think, the weirdness of it. I mean, he's, he's fantastic about how he, it's, I'm sorry, it's very, it's very gentle, actually, about how he exposes the oddities of it without oh, yeah. being... And funny. It's funny. It's funny. It's yeah, funny. funny. I mean, that's, it's, again, like, I don't really read things that aren't on some level. Funny but it's a bit like, it. it's got shades of soda in that it's also a social, a social history too, isn't it? It is. That, you know, he's, the decay, the, the people wearing out, people, the young collaborators in the war, yeah. people that got shot, reprisals. I wrote down some of the things that are in it. Chicory, chicory, major Belgian obsession. <laughs> Stuffed animals. Trappist beers. There's a really good bit in it where he says there are Flemish Trappist beers and there are Walloon Trappist beers because even if you don't speak, you have to know what language you're not speaking in in Belgium, which I really loved. Des Allemands sleep, which is what they call um, the Flemish, which is um, Germans in pants because they walk, they walk around with no trousers on, apparently. Um, he talks about Mini Europe, which is literally the worst tourist attraction I've ever been to. It's in Brussels. It, it's the most boring thing anyone's ever devised as a supposed sort of means of entertainment. And he talks about Mini Europe, so that always amuses me. There's a lot about rail travel, and I spend an awful lot of time on trains. And he's sort of a big, he does his writing on trains, and he talks about sort of, you know. And there's a really great bit about the. Fête Nationale, the sort of national vessel. I'd quite like to read that bit. Yes, please. He says they sort of go around to find it. He's definitely, yeah, he's definitely one of those writers that you need to... You have to hear what he's saying. You can't... Nobody can tell you how good he is until you pick it up. He's a poet. Well, that's one of the things to say, and it, it shows, I think. You can really sort of... You can tell he's a poet when you read it. And it's got some poems in there. Here we go, National Day. Belgian National, national Day is the 21st of July, and... Um, famously, the Belgian Prime Minister, when asked to sing the Belgian national anthem about five years ago, did not know what it was and sang La Marseillaise instead, <laughs> which is, gives you a sort of idea of what the, you know, Belgian national identity is like. And I just really like this um, paragraph. It says, There is a brass band that starts at the Hotel de Ville and parades through the town, picking up followers the way a canal clapped out vacuum cleaner picks up dust, no longer by suction, but by dragging its nozzle along the floor and hoping to engage a few tufts. The fire brigade and police are supposed to attend, but last year the fire brigade forgot. (laughs) National Day doesn't count for much when your real sense of belonging comes from the parish, the few square miles you'll cover with your feet in a lifetime, where stasis becomes indistinguishable from change. I just, I think he's, he's sort of, you have that idea that he's really thoughtful and really funny at the same time about that sort of weird, weird place. So how, how does, I mean, does Belgium feel more, more home than Paris did? I've been in Belgium for 10 years now and I've never so, spent anything like that amount of time living in Paris. So inevitably it does. But does it genuinely feel like home? I don't know. I don't know. It, it does have this real sort of seam of oddness running through it. And I like the oddness, but it's an odd, you know, I'm not sure you ever, do you really ever feel like you belong there? I don't know. It's a, it's a place which has a lot of really long-term expats living there. So clearly people settle and they like it and it's a very easy place to live in some ways, as long as you never go to Trinity do sort of any paperwork. But um, it's a really sort of nice way of life. It's very green, it's very pretty, food's nice. But yeah, they just have that sort of, underbelly of strangeness I think and also it's a country that does it really exist still I don't know I mean I don't think they know whether it really still exists they didn't have a government for about 18 months five years (laughs) (laughs) yeah we didn't have a government for a really long time basically no one noticed no it didn't it didn't make a great deal of difference in all all honesty (laughs) (laughs) but they're completely in tune with um, the, the sense of the absurd there's a real, I mean, you know, clearly the, the surrealists all come from Belgium, but, they, you know, the absurdity of their own situation is something that Belgians are very, very conscious of, and sort of Belgian humour is quite sort of self-deprecating in a way that I like, and they're very conscious of how odd, odd a place it is that they live in. Well, it's hard, I mean, who's, who is it that says everything is material, it's all material? Uh, every, uh, I don't know, probably mother. Every, every journalist. Nora Ephron's mother? Probably every journalist ever, writing down, every writer, yeah, yeah. just like everything's material. I mean, Belgium seems like a really rich, rich seam of that, and that's certainly something that come came across in the 
in the blog. I just want to go back quickly to the, um, or maybe not quickly, it might take me a different way. How long take our time. <laughs> <laughs> um, about the idea of anonymity, because obviously okay, when you write yeah. a book, you're, you, know, the, you know, the authoring is very important. And actually this, uh, the idea of the books that build me, it's the, it's the author that's important. Obviously the book's important too, but it's getting inside your head that's important. Yeah, when I talk to Polly Samson, she's very interested in Elena Ferranti, who of course is a pseudonymous author, and her anonymity is very, very protected. Yeah. And she uh, is fierce about that because it then allows her to say, or rather, Polly Samson admires her freedom to say really difficult things. Um, and I wondered, having been anonymous, and say the things that are in your head that are not that you wouldn't say if you if people knew, knew who you were. How was that something that went through your head when you were an anonymous blogger? When you have been summoned to your work HR department to discuss the fact that you described your workplace as a corridor of ennui, (laughs) (laughs) you do tend to sort of take a more cautious approach going forwards. They were quite nice. I have to say, in all fairness, they were actually quite nice about it. They were like these things you've said, they're not so great. Could you please delete them? <laughs> However, you know, great writing. Because so, you know, fair play to them. But. Did that happen before you were, I mean, before or after you had, you had a big piece in the sun? It was because time? of that. Because it was of that. because of that, yeah. So, so the act of blogging was anonymous, the act yeah. of um, yeah. writing, and then, and then you came out in the... Yeah, but I, mean, I don't think, an, an anonymity, I mean, barring Ellen Ferrante, is not really sustainable, I think. Um, is it less sustainable in the digital age? Cl- clearly, it must be. It must be, surely, mustn't it? You know, and everyone's trying to work out Eleanor Ferranti is the person, you know. <laughs> it's not like she's saying, oh, you know, we must, we respect your artistic dimash. You're doing it, you know, this is, this is totally legitimate. Nobody's doing that. They're like, we need to find out who she is. So, I don't think you can ever write in the assumption that what you're going to write is going to remain anonymous anymore, if you ever could. So, you've got to write what you're willing to put your too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I write quite honestly. No, that, I, mean, that being the, the case. I mean, it's I love. I mean, you know, I love your book, and it's incredibly yeah. honest. Um, but I tend to sort of reserve the worst, the worst stuff for myself because that's only fair, isn't it? <laughs> when you're writing about real people. <laughs> I'm you know, you know me. I'm never, I'm never one for the unvarnished truth. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not as poetic that way. <laughs> so, um, so for a long time, you were an anonymous blogger. You yeah. wrote brilliant things. Had a massive, massive following. Still have a massive following. Um, you were picked for the Times 100, which is the first ever list of great blogs. And then, and then the, t- the Sunday Times approached you to do yeah. a piece about yeah. <laughs> about blogging. Yeah. <laughs> what was going through my head? I don't know. <laughs> What can I tell you? One in a series of major life mistakes, I think. <laughs> to think that I could do that without it becoming. I remember just looking at my blog statistics the day after, and like 90% of them were coming from my work IP address. And thinking, <laughs> okay, Monday morning's going to be interesting. <laughs> and I don't know, it just never crossed my mind. I think I was just a bit deranged. Wow, Sunday Times, that sounds good. <laughs> but I suppose after, after the <laughs> well, it was good though, it was brilliant. One person that wasn't actually working in the corridor one week, it was yeah, a really yeah. excellent read. Yeah, absolutely. But I wonder if that kind of confers a kind of authority on what you were writing, being seen in. I think for, I think it was nice for me is to have the sense that, oh, a proper newspaper wants to publish something I've written. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was, and how, that and was how, very much the case. How far did that make you, I, I guess, feel right? Actually, I can. I can now go from a blog to a to a book, which is a different kind of enterprise. No, I don't think that came then at all. I think that came a lot later. So um, what was the switch that came on then between the switch from blogging to, mem- to memoir? Um, I read, um, I know it's not here, it should probably have been one of those books, Janice Galloway's memoir. Janice Galloway's a Scottish writer and she writes... Um, Nothing very exceptional has happened in her life, but she's a very beautiful writer about sort of the tiny incidents of life and... And it was the first thing that made me think, actually, maybe I could write memoir. You know, there would be a way of doing it that was something really dramatic doesn't have to have happened to you for this to be worth writing. It can be about the way you write it or the way you present it. So I think reading those kinds of memoirs, maybe, a sort of a different kind of memoir. So they say that, I can't remember what it was that said, that either you have something really exceptional has to have happened to you for memoir yeah. to be interesting, or you have to write about it exceptionally. 
and I guess Janice Gallery gave me a way of thinking, oh, well, there are ways of writing. Interestingly, I wouldn't say exceptionally with her. Well, yes, I mean, I think they say, I mean, they say they've got two kinds of writers, very plot-driven ones, or, yeah. or, uh, or those with, or those, that are, those novels that are, are voice-driven, and I guess the same is true in memoirs. It's probably true, yeah. yeah. I think, so, yeah, that is true. Yeah. Very sadly, we're going to come to your final book. Which is I realise I don't have much to say about this. I just really love it, but we'll we'll find something. <laughs> I think there's I think there's no shortage. It's Archie and John Mark was Archie and his So tell us tell us about why you've chosen it, and then okay. So Archie is a cockroach, and <laughs> Mehitabel is a cat, and Archie writes these free verse poems by banging his head against the keyboard. <laughs> so it's very silly. But um, and a very unpunctuated, obviously, because he can't. He can't do capitals. He has, he, there's a one poem where he gets the shift key for a while. He's, he's <laughs> writes the whole thing in capitals. <laughs> capitals at last. But yes, it's unpunctuated, free verse. He says he was, and um, and it's sort of the the, the anecdotes of um, this sort of incorrigible, bad, wild cat called Mahitabel mainly, who sort of had a very colourful life. Uh, it's generally down on her luck sort of things have rarely pan out for Mahitabel and it's the thing I love <laughs> there are a couple of things I love about it firstly Archie finds writing very very hard <laughs> so do I and Don Marquis apparently I was I this today but apparently Don Marquis also found writing really really quite painful and hard and so I think you know the writing process is not always easy and sometimes you have to bang the keyboard with your head in order to get anywhere and Mahitabel is a cat who makes an awful lot of mistakes in her life, but Mahitabel's she has two sort of catchphrases, one of which is, what the hell? What the hell, Archie? What the hell? Um, which I love. She does this sort of attitude that's really marvellous. And the other one is, toujours gay. Toujours gay. Um, and she says that all the time, because, you know, you've got to be, got to stay happy, even if you've messed it up and you're living in a gutter and you've drowned your third set of kittens. <laughs> and, and, drunk a lot of beer and things are all going horribly wrong but she's toujours gay and I mean it's in my book because um, that's like the sort of quote at the front of it because I just think it's a really lovely life philosophy <laughs> she's just utterly incorrigible terrible things she lies she lies constantly you can sort of tell you're sort of reading between the lines there's an awful lot of lying she said oh yes I'm a I'm an Abyssinian, and then Archie says, oh, you don't look like it. And she's like, well, part something like that, part Persian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's so... Full she of tall tales. She's full of... She likes, she's somebody who likes to kill the, uh, kill the lily. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sort of idea that you have a sort of... Hmm, a persona that you inhabit, I think it's really lovely. I'm not, I'm not like that at all, but I love the idea of it. I kind of... I, was, I mean, this is really random, but I was thinking, wondering... He wrote it in... They wrote the first one in 1916. Yeah, that's right. Another famous insect-based book, <laughs> Bacchus Metamorphosis, was published in 1915. And I was trying to think, you can a thesis yeah, there, I'm like, <laughs> insect lit. Insect lit. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lot funnier, need a lot, a lot funnier than Cactus. Because it, I mean, Archie has... Has been a free poet in a, a free in a previous life, in a previous yeah, yes. And Mehitabel thinks she's Cleopatra, and she's reincarnation of Cleopatra, of course. Oh, you know, and they could be his contemporary of um, Fitzgerald and all those kind of glorious New yeah. York people. Did you say you wanted to read read one of them, or are you? Um, I'll read a little bit. There's this one that I really like. Um, the the toujours gay and the what the hell are all good, but I also like the lesson of the moth because you know. Archie kind of deals with what he finds around him, which is basically rats, spiders, mice. So there's this thing about the moth, which I quite like, and it's called The Lesson of the Moth. I was talking to a moth the other evening. He was trying to break into an electric light bulb and fry himself on the wires. Why do you fellows pull this stunt, I asked him. Because it is the conventional thing for moths. Or, or why, if that had been an uncovered candle instead of an electric light bulb, you would now be a small, unsightly cinder. Have you no sense? Plenty of it, he answered, but at times we get bored of using it. We get bored with the routine and crave beauty and excitement. Fire is beautiful, and we know that if we get too close, it will kill us. But what does that matter? It is better to be happy for a moment and to be burned up with beauty than to live a long time and be bored all the while. So we wad all our life up into one little roll, and then we shoot the roll. That is what life is for. It is better to be a part of beauty for one instant and then cease to exist than to exist forever, and never to be a part of beauty. Our attitude towards life is come easy, go easy. We are like human beings used to be before they became too civilised to enjoy themselves. 
And before I could argue him out of his philosophy, he went and immolated himself on a patent cigar lighter. <laughs> I do not agree with him myself. I would rather have half the happiness and twice the longevity. But at the same time, I wish that there was something I wanted as badly as he wanted to fry himself. <laughs> I don't particularly, you know, subscribe to that philosophy either. But <laughs> I just think he sort of puts... There are some quite big themes in there, but he presented them in this very sort of funny way. Funny way. Yeah. I think yeah. we can say the same about... We'd always have parents. <laughs> um, we probably have run out of time. But I just want to say... So you would say... But I was particularly struck when you said your preoccupations are about identity and language. And I think one of the things that comes out of this beautiful book uh, is, is how, how much language means to you. And your prose is really, really extraordinary and evocative and moving and very, very funny in that dark morning way that you've described. Thank you, Helen. Um, but it's also about... Uh, you can have that. Um, <laughs> We've recorded it. It's fine. Oh, that's fine. We can listen to it right repeatedly. When I'm on my keyboard bashing days. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also about identity, and like you know, like when you're an, a cockroach or a cat, or um, you've got a or half Belgian, or you're writing in railway-based. <laughs> Going well, you're doing good. You're doing good. Keep going. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to eventually come back to finding who you are, and that the, and finding who you are. I think the thing that comes out for me about the book is that it's discovering the writer in you, and um, I'm very, very glad that you did discover the writer in you. Please. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Books That Built Me podcast. Thank you to Champagne Bollinger, Tatler, the Clavert Café Royal, Estee Lauder Companies and to Prestat Chocolate for their continued support. For more, do visit thebooksthatbuiltme.co.uk or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com, thebooksthatbuiltme.